There's a unique energy in the often overlooked northeast corner of Europe that we'll explore right now with Neil Taylor. Neil is a foremost authority on the Baltic region. He edits the British-based guidebooks put out by Brat Guides to Estonia, to Tallinn, and another guidebook on the six major Baltic cities. Neil, thanks for joining us again. Good to be with you, Rick. So now, Neil, the six Baltic cities. I mean, when I think of the Baltics, of course, we know uh, Vilnius, Riga, and Tallinn, the three capitals. What are the six Baltic cities? Well, there are the three capitals are very important, but then they each have other cities which tourists should really go to. For instance, in Estonia, there's Tartu, the university city. I rather compare it to sort of the Ivy League university cities in the States or the Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge Mm. here in Britain as places that are an easy visit from the main capital. And then in Latvia... It's important to go out to the coast. I mean, Riga, if you can picture the geography, is actually sort of in a bay, but it's worth getting to the real Baltic Sea. And there's Liepaja, a town that was built up by the Germans over the centuries, a major port. And in fact, a lot of Latvian immigrants to the States went from there. It was their last view of their home country before seeking their fortune in the US around 1900. And then if we move down to Lithuania, the second city there is called Kaunas, also has a big university and actually was the capital of Lithuania between 1920 and 1940. The Poles were in occupation in Vilnius at that time, so a sort of older capital in a sense of Lithuania, but now a thriving second city in that country. Now that's interesting. You've got Kalnos being the historic capital of Lithuania, just like Krakow was the historic capital of Poland, and Turku was the historic capital of Finland, and they all got changed. How does a country have to change its capital? I mean, Kaunas is very different in the sense it was a sort of enforced capital. I think it's a bit like Bonn in Western Germany after the Second World War when it wasn't possible to have the German capital in Berlin. Well, it wasn't possible to have the Lithuanian capital in Vilnius because the Poles were occupying it. And in fact, therefore, it was the obvious place to have the temporary capital of Lithuania. The Lithuanians saw it's rather different from, say, Krakow or Turku, which had long centuries of when they were genuine capitals of larger countries. Okay. Now, I get a sense when you're in the Baltic states. uh, When I was in Estonia recently, they said, boy, when you're jammed in between two mighty nations, Russia and Germany you got a tough road to hoe, and they were perpetually outgunned, and they said, we have to sing just to let people know we exist. How has that impacted the cultures, and then today what we'll see as travelers when we go to these little countries bullied between Germany and Russia? Well, luckily, the legacy is purely architectural now. I could take you around Tallinn, Tartu, similar cities in the other two countries, and show you a lot of German buildings, a lot of Russian imperial buildings. And in the last 20 years, of course, there have been buildings from local architects. But you would not sort of think, well, this is Germany or this is Russia anymore. You would see that they are different countries with their different languages. But that's only in the last sort of 20 years because the former powers had such a grip on them. You got the German architecture, then the Russian, then the contemporary. Would the German be mostly from the Hanseatic age? Very much so, yes, because these areas were developed as ports. The goods came from Russia firstly by boat in the last 150 years by train and were exported through the Baltic ports. So 
Tallinn and Riga, those capitals, very important. And then Liepaja, the town I was mentioning earlier. And then on the Lithuanian coast, what was for many years actually part of Germany, Maymol, but now the port of Klaipeda. When I went to Riga, the capital of Latvia, it struck me that this is a German city. It looks like Lübeck in Germany or something. That's right. I mean, part of the old town because it was German architecture, German money that built it up. I mean, it was never a formal German colony, but in a sense, the Germans ran it. And whoever else was in power, the Germans still ran it. Sometimes the Swedes conquered it, the Poles conquered it, the Imperial Russians conquered it, but the Germans actually ran Riga until the First World War. And you get that same feeling in uh, Tallinn, in Estonia. In Tallinn, in Estonia, yes, you do. But but Vilnius uh, seems more wistful and countryside bumpkin kind of run down to me. It's revitalised itself and it's much more southern, much more, some people might say, laid back because it is further south and the architecture is Italian and Spanish. So you don't get the business sense of urgency there that you do in Tallinn and Riga. That's very much the difference there. And it's a Catholic approach to life rather than a Protestant approach to life. Now, that's a good way to distinguish Lithuania from Latvia and Estonia, isn't it? You've got that South Catholic, North Protestant, Germanic, big trading cities in Latvia and Estonia, whereas Lithuania is more rural and small town and less prosperous? Yes, that's right, because the capital was never on the coast. And this town of Klaipeda, which in German times was Maymor, was always a much smaller port than Riga in particular or Tallinn was. So Vilnius between the wars was a provincial Polish city. It wasn't a capital, and it had to recover that role of being a capital. Now, when I think of these countries, I just feel like a lot of Americans have a hard time getting their brains around which one to go to. And and we have these images of the the Soviet Union and frightened people and downtrodden uh, economies and so on. How have the three great capitals of these countries changed, in your mind, in, in the last decade? Colour has come back. I mean, this started immediately after 1990. That was when the changes took place, of course, all over Eastern Europe, not only in what are now the Baltic countries. And colour came back immediately and as quickly as possible. So the grey atmosphere that there was, as you say, in Soviet times, has gone completely. And that's why they can be so welcoming to tourists. And you've got the greenery. It's not only that the houses have been repainted, the public buildings repainted, but you've got large public parks too now. And which of the capitals has fared best with capitalism and freedom in the last 20 years? Um, Probably Riga, because it lost most in Soviet times. Riga is the biggest capital by far. Its population is now a little under a million. At various stages, it's been a little over a million. The other two have populations of about 400,000. Riga has Zeppelin hangars. Yes, it does. Yes, it has its market now, which were originally Zeppelin hangars, which were to protect the Zeppelins had they been used in the First World War, which they I love. I love that market. I can't believe I'm in a Zeppelin hangar. (laughs) But there, going back to what we were saying about colour, I think you've probably seen more changes in that market than anywhere else in Riga. We were talking about architecture, but just look at the range of items on sale there. (laughs) And, of course, the range of people who are buying them. So that isn't a luxury market. It's a very general market where things cost everything from a cent to $100, as it were. 
you know, all over a former communist world, I feel like it's just a festival of pent-up entrepreneurial spirit as people are embracing the freedom to, to work hard and be creative. It's good times for the Baltics, I, I guess, when you look at their very difficult 20th century. Very much so. And I mean, culturally, you see this, the range of music, the range of pictures, the furniture or the carpet designs in so many different fields. You see this explosion, the sort of feeling that people couldn't be creative for 40 years. And here we are in the West. I mean, we could be creative for, say, 60 years, assuming we're working between the ages of 20 and doing something until we're 80. So all the people who perhaps were 40, 20 years ago have had to compress into 20 mm. years what they otherwise would have done over 60. It's a heady time. I'm speaking with Neil Taylor. and Neil is a Londoner who spends a lot of his year in the Baltics, and he writes guides for the Brat series to Estonia and to the six great Baltic cities. Neil, you know, when you think about Scandinavia, the Swedes and the Norwegians have this kind of teasing sibling rivalry, and uh, they sort of exaggerate their national traits as they rag on each other. What kind of relationship do the Baltic states have with each other? Similar. So within the Baltics, yes, I mean, the same jokes that the Norwegians <laughs> tell about the Swedes and the Swedes tell about the Norwegians, you have a similar relationship between Estonia and Latvia. Well, Estonia and Latvia are much closer because of this Protestant background than okay. Lithuania is. Lithuania is much more independent from the other two and leans more to southern Europe and to Poland. To Poland. Because it was an empire for many years. So maybe we think of the three Baltics together because of their status within the Soviet Union, but historically, we should really think of the two, Latvia and Estonia as sister nations and Lithuania as kind of the, the little sister of Poland or something like that. Does that make sense? Yes, well, the Lithuanians wouldn't be happy to use that <laughs> term because they've had struggles with the Poles, but uh, looked at from a sort of U.S. perspective, I can understand that, that there are quite a lot of parallels between Lithuania and Poland which don't exist between Estonia and Latvia. That's very true. Greg in San Diego emails us, and Greg writes, As part of Glasnost, I went to the Soviet Union as a high school student. Having just read George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, we lived the reality of the book in Tallinn, where, quote, some pigs are more equal than others, unquote. I made great Estonian friends who visit us here in the United States, and we visit them regularly. How is the rich Estonian choral tradition continuing after the singing revolution? It's a great issue, the, the great choral tradition in Estonia and in the other countries. What's the status of that today, Neil? Yes, now that is paralleled in all three countries, that they have major song festivals every year, and then choral groups. I mean, this unites the generations. One might think, well, it's only the old people who are going to sing. It was the political bond in the Soviet period. But no, people of 20, 25, 30, who, of course, don't remember or hardly remember the Soviet period, they are singing just as much as their parents and their grandparents. And it is a great cultural phenomenon because, of course, it's the, using their language, they're using music by local composers. So if there's westernization in the commercial world with the American, the British, the German brands, certainly not in singing or in orchestral music either. And when you go to Latvia especially, I think you have these men's choruses that are just, you can't hardly miss them. No, you can't, no. And they are all round the country. It's often an accusation in the UK that there's too much culture in our big cities and not enough in the smaller ones. Well, singing takes place all over Estonia and all over Latvia and Lithuania. You're quite right in that respect. Now, I know that during the Soviet times, Russia tried to dilute the people of Estonia and I think Latvia and Lithuania by having a lot of Russians settle in those countries. What is the fallout of that today for these countries? What issues are they dealing with because of their Russian minorities? 
Well, in the case of Latvia, it's only just a minority. I think the Russians are about 45% and the Latvians 55% now. They're parts of the country which are intensely Russian. That applies in both Estonia and in Latvia, towns where Russian is really the major language. Lithuania Mm. has far fewer Russians. Only about 10% of the population is Russian, so not so much of an issue Mm. there. And they have been trying to integrate them as much as possible. The language issue is a major problem there because the local people feel that the Russians should finally learn Estonian and Latvian. And the Russians, particularly the older ones, have felt, well, we've lived here for a very long time. Why should we bother? But the language issue is important because there was the threat that these languages would die out had the Soviet regime continued for another generation or two. They would have said to the young people, well, what is the point of learning these languages for your career? You need Russian if you're going to Leningrad, it was called then, or Moscow or anywhere else. Just forget your local language, put that behind you, and learn Russian and use Russian. So it's, it's important now that the local languages sort of are respected and that the Russian community gets a working knowledge of either Estonian, Latvian, or Lithuanian. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Neil Taylor, who writes guidebooks to the Baltic region. Neil, a lot of people go to Scandinavia, and I'm a big fan of them spicing up their Scandinavian experience by taking that fast boat from Finland over to Estonia and Tallinn and then side-tripping down to the other Baltic states. Tell us, just from a practicality's point of view, what are the hoops you have to go through to travel in the Baltics? Well, there aren't hoops now. U.S. passport holders can travel throughout the European Union without visas for any country and in fact without border controls through most of them so when you go from Finland to Estonia nobody's going to ask for a passport when you go from Estonia to Latvia perhaps on to Poland or to Germany nobody's going to ask to see a passport it's quite extraordinary now you can go from the north of Finland to the south of Portugal with the same currency obviously with the same passport but without actually showing it so it's very much like perhaps traveling from one state to another in the U.S. You don't really know necessarily that you've crossed a border. And if somebody had 10 days or so to dedicate to the Baltic region, how would you recommend they spend it? Um, They could certainly spend sort of three to four days in each of the relatively small, of course, Baltic countries. They would then start in Estonia, in Tallinn, go to Tartu, the second city there, go through perhaps the Latvian countryside, which is a little more dramatic than the countryside in Estonia and in Lithuania, but get, of course, to Riga, then cross the border near what's called the Hill of Crosses, a very important Catholic shrine in northern Lithuania, and make their way to Vilnius and fly out from there, perhaps. And it's very easy to fly into one end and out of the other end and connect the cities. Yes, the airlines all allow that. There are no problems or get one-way fares and large sort of international airports in both Tallinn and in Vilnius, so that isn't a problem. Last time I was in Tallinn, I was very impressed by the Occupation Museum telling the story of the Estonian people under the Soviet Union and under the German Nazis. Are there other museums like that now opening up in in, uh, Lithuania and Latvia now that enough years have gone by so they can deal with these hard truths? Uh, Yes. They're very moving museums in both Riga and in Vilnius as well, detailing these crimes. So in a sense, you sometimes think as a holidaymaker, should you go there? But I think you should. You do need to know the history of the last 60 or 70 years. It's like going to Holocaust museums in other places. It's important that you devote a little bit of a holiday time to the political history. And as the years go by, it seems like, you know, now that Grandpa's dead, we can deal with this a little more candidly. And uh, you've got these museums that really are quite probing into the police states and all of these horrors that these people had to live just in the last generation. 
Yes, that's right, and it's important that next generations appreciate that because there isn't grandpa to tell the story directly anymore. But what went wrong then, we must know in subsequent generations. That's critical that we learn from that history. Are there warm memories of the communist times that, that we can partake in when we're traveling through this region? Not as a traveller. I mean, some of the older people reminisce about the collective approach to life, that the village always got together around the weekly film show and things like that. Well, that doesn't happen now. People are watching their own televisions. They're travelling into town. The youngsters may be working in London. Who knows? It's a more individual society, and some of the older people, as I say, don't like that. I think that's the generation that had the toughest time with the transition was the older generation. Very much so, yes, because life was so predictable beforehand. You knew your entire life what a loaf of bread cost, what a pint of milk cost, and really what your salary was, because it didn't change either. So it was straightforward, but was dull, of course. Yeah. My favourite factoid from my last visit to the Baltics was uh, a local guide told me that the first millionaires in post-communist Estonia were people selling junk metal to Germany, and they were literally dismantling the cage that the Soviets had built to keep these people down. Right, I could imagine that, yes. And there was instant profit in that. Instant profit, and now when they go to their beaches, they sunbathe on the former military installations that kept the people from going out in their fishing boats. Yes, yes, because you couldn't fish in those countries because the risk was, as far as the Soviets were concerned, that the fishing boat would turn up in Sweden or in Finland and not return to Estonia or Latvia. What a brilliant opportunity for people to inject a little bit of reality travel into their next European trip by checking out the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And when you do it, I think you'll want to be equipped with one of the guidebooks that Neil Taylor writes about this region. Neil, thanks so much for uh, shining a light on the Baltic states. Thank you, Rick. It's been nice talking to you. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.